Good evening and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host for tonight, Dean Johnson. Tonight, we present the first 2023 installment of our most popular feature, Landlord-Tenant Law. During the pandemic, we saw numerous emergency measures designed to protect businesses and individuals who lost their ability to pay rent in the face of COVID. Most of those measures are going away, but inflation is here and recession may be on the way. Are the pandemic measures completely gone or will they will they remain behind to deal with these new potential social crises? What laws remain to protect tenants and landlords and what new developments are on the horizon? Our landlord tenant episodes have become something of a tradition here at Your Legal Rights, and we always get the best questions and comments from you, our listeners. So give us a call tonight. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. Once again, that's 415-841-4134. Or if you're outside the Bay Area, you can call us at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And as always, our caveat, please bear in mind that our attorney guests are here to educate and inform, but they cannot provide specific legal advice for specific cases unless they know all the facts. Returning tonight, our guests, our regular guests, two of the Bay Area's top landlord-tenant attorneys, actually three of the top landlord-tenant attorneys here in the Bay Area, For some 20 years, San Francisco landlord-tenant attorney Jessica Chilek has represented clients in rent board actions, mediations, and court for landlord-tenant issues. Jessica launched her practice to specialize in San Francisco residential evictions, vacancy agreements, and rent board petitions for tenants, landlords, master tenants, and subtenants. San Mateo attorney David Finkelstein is a graduate of NYU's law school, a fine institution, and David is admitted to practice in the states of California and New York, beginning his career as a staff attorney in California for the National Housing Law Project at Bolt Hall Law School. David has been representing clients in real estate and landlord-tenant matters for some 40 years. David has published articles about protection for renters during the COVID crisis. And also joining us tonight is San Francisco attorney Salvatore Tempano. Sal is considered one of the top attorneys in the Bay Area to practice in the area of landlord-tenant law, and he represents both landlords and tenants in the area of eviction. Sal, David, Jessica, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Thank you, Dean. So I, I get to I get to do something tonight that I've always wanted to do. I get to say, as we go to air tonight, there is breaking news. President Biden announced today that he is considering an executive order that creates, get this, national rent control. Your reactions. Good idea, bad idea, disaster. What do you say? I uh, let me let me start off. Uh, I'm 
Okay, David? I think it's a bad idea, and I think for the following reasons. No one doubts that housing uh, is a basic necessity. Uh, the question is, uh, why wouldn't you start at uh, maybe restricting the increase in gasoline prices or how about food prices? My wife tells me she was shocked and went to the market the other day. A dozen eggs were $5 or more. Uh, a bunch of celery was as high as $9. That uh, Food and gasoline are as basic as, as housing rights. I don't think anyone would argue much about restricting increases to existing tenants to some some reasonable level, like not more than 10% a year or or something in, in that regard, but to but to have um uh actual uh, uh further uh, restrictions on on rent increases uh, I think is is not a Appropriate, and it would change the nature of our society from a free market one to something other than that. Yeah, and I want to get into that later in the show. I mean, it seems like we're almost abandoning the notion that the market sets the prices. Uh, and national rent control may be the, the last nail in that coffin. But would this I, – I have a, a number of questions. First of all, is this something that's driven by people outside of California? I know there were New York Congress people who were pushing this and having come from New York and lived in New York, I know that, you know, rent control departments are like family heirlooms that get handed down generation to generation. The rent increases in New York City, I think last year were something like 16 percent on average. Is this uh, is this is the is national rent control a solution to a California problem, or have we got it under control? I, I don't know if national rent control is really a viable viable thing because, well, first of all, there are a couple of agencies that really need to do a lot of work: the Federal Trade Commission and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Both need to do some research and, and, and uh, identify uh, practices that unfairly prevent applicants and tenants from accessing or staying in housing, reading directly from the fact sheet that was issued. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do there. I also think that in areas um, that don't have the same issues as California, um, there's going to be pushback. I'm not sure that um, California and even to New York, to some extent, from what I've been reading in the Wall Street Journal, I mean, not the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, is that, that um, I forgot where I was going with it. Anyway, uh, but I think there's going to be pushback from other states saying that, you know, housing is really a state issue rather than a federal issue. You know, we've had that pushback on other topics that are hot in the news. And I think that there's going to be, we should anticipate some pushback there. Yeah, boy, if there was ever a case for um, a, a, a proactive 10th Amendment states' rights litigation, I, I think this might be it. What do you think, Salvatore? 
No, I, I, I agree uh, with you and Jessica. I, I think David agrees as well. It is a state's rights issue. Any state right now can put into effect, um, you know, procedures to, to, to have their state be rent controlled. Any state can do it. And the states can also uh, allow or not allow the counties to to enact rent control. So I just don't really see the need for the federal government to do a power grab in this way. And I don't think the states are going to want it either. What, why do they, they don't need the federal government to give them permission to enact or not rent control? They could do it on their own, and they've been able to do it on their own from the beginning. So, what, you know, this federal um, rent control doesn't make sense to me in that regard at all. Yeah, me neither. And I, I'm wondering, you know, how do you administer such a thing? I mean, they're talking, the, the White House is talking about price gouging and excessive rent. I would bet, and I haven't looked up the figures, but I would just bet if you took the average rent for an apartment in San Francisco and you tried to charge it in, say, Cedar Rapids, that would be beyond belief for the residents of Cedar Rapids. I mean, that would be price gouging and excessive rent by anybody's uh, criteria. I mean, it's probably, and it's probably true for Cedar Rapids and Des Moines as well. I mean, it it varies from, as you all know, this, the the rent standards vary from county to county, from state to state, um, from, from block to block, right? You know, you don't have to go that far. You could go to Fresno and charging $4,000 for a two-bedroom apartment would be outrageous in Fresno. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and people would say, that's that's rent gouging. But you move to San Francisco, and it's like, oh, $4,000. I'm, I'm lucky to get it. But, you know, in, in California, we in 2019, the uh, Tenants' Rights Act came into effect. And that uses local uh, consumer price index numbers to adjust, you know, within the state in the various agencies. I mean, there's a potential that the federal government could do something like that. The uh, HUD administers the Section 8 and other voucher, you know, other um, subsidized housing programs, and and they track that. So, you know, and the uh, Department of, um, sorry, the State Department of Fair Employment and Housing looks at, you know, potential overcharges and things like that. There's got there's federal levels of that as well. So, I mean, the potential is is there, but I really think there's going to be a lot more pushback than than, you know, people are are thinking about right now. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering whether in California anyway this could possibly backfire. I mean, California, we have, as I understand it, statewide rent control, all sorts of rent regulations. I mean, could somebody come in and say, "Okay, now we've got a federal standard and all of that's off the boards. It's preempted. That would certainly pose a problem and that would probably be an issue. But I, I just don't see how the federal government would, you know, preempt state rights in this regard. States have had these rights, you know, for (laughs) <laughs> from the beginning of their, inse- you know, when they were, you know, first incepted. So I, I just don't see it. I, I'm not, I, I don't see it. Uh, and the price, price gouging, it's still, as far as the tenants go, you know, a free market. They just won't go to that apartment. If the apartment is too expensive or the, or the you know, the housing, they'll just go to another one. And in San Francisco, which, you know, is a, you know, good city to look at as far as people wanting to live here, um, 
landlords aren't able to get whatever they want right now. Tenants will leave and go to another unit. That's my, been my experience in my practice in the last few months uh, where my landlord clients are, are telling me they can't get the, the apartment rented for what they thought, you know, or for what it was before COVID. So they've got to reduce the price in San Francisco, in nice neighborhoods. Um, I think real estate agents would, would probably, you know, have the same experience because I spoke to some of them as well. Um, so I don't know that there's price gouging going on in San Francisco. I think the rents are actually lower than they were pre-COVID. That's That's been my experience with at least 12 landlords. So. And I think on the issue of preemption, you know, if, fed, if the uh, if federal rent control would preempt state rent control, I think it would depend on how it was written. Um, because in California, local agent areas have had rent control. San Francisco has had rent control since the 1980s uh, for the city and county of San Francisco. Um, Berkeley, it was, you know, a bit later, but still in Oakland in the 2000s. But, um, you know, and, and when the state came in later, it made accommodation for that. You know, it said, oh, we're going to put in rent control for places that don't already have it. And there's also limitations too, like in statewide rent control, the unit has to have been on the, you know, has to have existed for at least 15 years before rent control applies anyway. Yeah, well, it sounds like we're all agreed that if this uh, national rent control goes through, it's going to be full employment for lawyers. Probably the the conservative wing, uh, maybe the entire bench at the Supreme Court is just rubbing their hands together saying, oh, remember West Virginia versus EPA, where we said administrative agencies don't have the ability to make major policy decisions? Well, here's one. And the FTC and all of those agencies are out of business when it comes to local rent control. I mean, I can we can certainly see that happening. But let's just change the subject a little bit. We've got Julie from Oakland is our first caller. Julie, are you there? Hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, thanks for taking the call. Um, so, yeah, I live in Oakland, and um, I have I have a single-family home, and I'm wondering, um, I believe my landlord has gotten the certificate of exemption through the Costa Hawkins loophole, um, so he's exempt from rent control. Um, is that still the case? That is, uh, well, the Tenant Protection Act would make, this is Sal, Sal Timpano, the Tenant Protection Act would actually uh, include your single family uh, rental as part of its rent control unless the landlord took the proper actions to exclude it. So the, hmm. the Tenant Protection Act would include it and then the, the landlord would have to would have to do something to exclude it, essentially give you notice that he's excluding that he or she is excluding the property from the Tenant Protection Act. If that hadn't been done, then it's part of part of um, part of the Tenant Protection Act rent controls. Does that okay. answer your and question? And so, what? Well, so is he's basically limited to a ten percent rent increase per year? Is that that right? Is that right? Uh, that's right. Okay. Um, also, I would I do have another comment. I have um, done a little activism trying to get um, rent control passed, and um, we're just up against such big money in this struggle. And so, I do think that federal a federal guideline would be very helpful. That's my two cents as somebody you know 
paying the rent. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that perspective. Um, and, and Julie makes a point. Um, here in the Bay Area, we really do have now a crazy quilt of landlord-tenant regulations, right? It's very yes. true. Yeah, we yeah. do. Oh, and just, Julie, for your, for your information, this is Jessica. I'm, I'm also a renter. So in in the East Bay, so I, I understand. It's just my, I, I think it's going to be a difficult fight on the federal rent control. But yes, the patchwork of of uh, rent control of rent rules in San Francisco Bay Area, Alameda still has its moratorium on all evictions, except for you know extremely dangerous people. Basically, is what it comes down to. And then there are other places like um, Redwood City, San Mateo County, where um, you can remove somebody. But as I understand it, there's a measure in place where the landlord, if he evicts somebody, may have to pay rent at the new place. Yes. Yeah. Tell uh, us about that. It's called called the relocation. And generally, uh, certain cities and counties have relocation standards. And um, it's generally uh, uh, based on the family status, how many children you have, and if you have a spouse living with you, uh, it could be, um, I think, as much as either three or four times uh, what what they call a fair market rate, which is published by a state agency. So it's not the actual rent of the unit, but what the fair market rate is considered for that unit, um, and it, it could be three times or even four times that amount. It could be a hefty amount of, of money. So, if uh, if the rent is four thousand dollars for the apartment, the landlord may well have to pay twelve thousand, or in certain cases, maybe even sixteen thousand as relocation for in return for evicting that tenant. And, and David, is that pursuant to the Tenant Protection Act, or is that oh, something local? That's a local uh, relocation statute. Okay. So depending on where you live, it might be impossible to get rid of your tenant, or you might have to pay thousands of dollars to get rid of your tenant. Um, what's a landlord to do? I mean, are there are there remedies for um, the the tenants who are problematic, who are a nuisance, um, who just don't pay their rent? Uh, what, what do you, how do you advise landlords when they come and say, look, I've got this huge problem. He bothers all the tenants. The police have been out, so on and so forth. How do you deal with those people? Yeah, well, so it's a practical problem. I'm talking from uh, a view of an attorney on the Mid-Peninsula, uh, and, and that is um, – uh, if the, if the tenant is a nuisance, yes, you theoretically you can evict him with a three-day nuisance notice, but you have to have witnesses and you have to have good evidence. If he's not paying rent, that's the easier way with a three-day notice to pay rent or quit, and that is easier to prove and uh, to get an eviction. But in, in uh some of these cases, it's a practical thing. Um, I know we were we were talking before the show started about Sal had this case that is going on for 
months now before there'll be a final uh, decision and uh, on, on the eviction. So how much is if you four thousand a month, and and how much is it going to cost for them to pay me to do that eviction trial? And if they lose, they might have to pay a huge amount to the other guy's attorney, even a public defender. Uh, so sometimes I would advise it's better to use the relocation and say, oh, we're going to do substantial remodeling, which, you know, we're going to pull out the kitchen and the flooring and the toilets, and it's going to take more than 30 days. So we're we're giving you a 60-day notice, and we'll pay you $12,000 uh, because it's cheaper than than going to trial and uh, now if you if 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 the tenant won't voluntarily agree and do that then maybe you have to go to trial anyway so then you wouldn't want to give him the twelve thousand but I found uh the majority of uh I've been able to negotiate those relocation settlement agreements um and um uh, and do it without going to court and having a trial. So that's what I advise down on the peninsula. So we're... Yeah, David, uh, I, it's really, I mean, uh, the you hit the nail on the head with, the, you know, the landlord's right to evict. Yeah, they have the right to evict, but they have the obligation to pay for it, and it's expensive. So, yeah. you know, if the if the the purpose behind these rights for landlords to evict were to have them think twice, oh, they're thinking twice. You know, because it's so expensive to do and it's risky as well. So it's not, you know, it's not a right that's just easy to 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 take advantage of because a lot of landlords just don't have the money. So they have a tenant not paying and they got a lawyer that's saying, well, you got to pay this much in court costs and witness fees and lawyer fees. And then you have these, uh, you know, imposed statutory payments to the tenants. So it's 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 expensive and difficult for for landlords to do the evictions. Fortunately, most tenants don't need to be evicted. You know, most tenancies are very good. It's just you know I deal with the bad ones, and so does David and Jessica. Um, you know, dealing with bad relationships between landlords and tenants, but most of them are good. So you know, we just have the small ones that need attention. Um, right. you know, I, I, so- I always say that like. Like like therapists, people come to us in crisis. <laughs> That's right. We're seeing the worst of of the of the batch, you know, of landlord tenant relationships. I've the worst done, of the worst. I, I've done a few uh, voluntary uh, move out settlement agreements in San Francisco. They're a little tricky, and probably Jessica would be the one to talk about because you've got to have like a a pre-agreement notice signed by the tenant that you're advising him of all of his rights uh, before you can even discuss the settlement. That's still the case, isn't it, Jessica? Oh, absolutely. The the vacancy agreements under the San Francisco rent ordinance are exactly that. There's a, a notice that goes to the tenant and a declaration that the landlord signs that goes to the, gets filed at the rent board that says that they sent the information to the tenant. It advises the tenant of their rights, um, which is that they can't, it includes they can't sign a written settlement agreement for at least 30 days after being given the notice of their rights um, or agreeing to a, a, a settlement, to a vacancy agreement. The uh, 
and uh, you know it can be rescinded for 45 days after the last signature by the tenant which is probably the longest regret clause in the in the history of law <laughs> well let's see let's see what susan from san francisco is concerned about susan are you there i am hi susan what's up well my primary question is going to be about the ellis act but let me just preface it by saying this i think that your folks who are visiting you tonight have a little bit of the pro-landlord piece of the universe in their minds to be evicted after you've been in the city 20 30 40 years and take 12 grand to move out to some place where the money's gone in a couple of months isn't a great trade-off I believe that property values in San Francisco went up anywhere between 20 and 40 percent during the pandemic. We now know that vacant buildings are worth more than buildings with long-term tenants in them. So there's that little piece of the universe. And along comes when you're opposed to Biden and any talk about federal stuff, not that it would be better for Californians or San Franciscans because of the things that we do have in place. You know, let's keep in mind that Properties aren't owned by ma and pa operations anymore. It's not grandma that owns the property anymore. They're dying off. Investors are buying them, and we know that they're multi-state, and we know that they focus on places where they can get away with evicting tenants and jack up the rents a lot. So those are some of the things on my mind in terms of your discussion. Um, my family, who's been in the city for many years, and I, who came in the 70s, are being Ellis Act evicted. I happen to be an SFUSD school teacher, and so I just don't make the kind of money that's going to make it easy to remain in the city, in spite of the fact that I'm a resource. I speak several languages, and I teach as a specialist. So, anyway, along comes the Ellis Act and some letters and a lot, lot, lot like that. New investors, a person who's a career realtor who's been in court 500 times, at least, in the East Bay in San Francisco, and does an Ellis Act eviction three months after purchasing the property. What I'm wondering is if you think there's something in that. I don't think, as if, and I'm not informed on the Ellis Act, by the way, not especially, but I don't think that teachers are protected, and I wonder if there's legislation that could be helpful on that. I'll take my responses off the air. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Susan. You know, Susan raises an issue that I've talked about a couple of times on the radio, which is this problem of, if you will, human ecology, that people like Susan, school teachers, essential workers, just can't afford uh, the rents in the Bay Area. And they, they the commute is so expensive that it doesn't pay them to come in here. So we have job openings and jobs sh- and labor shortages for essential people. What do you think about that? Where Where is the balance of power here? Landlords, tenants, uh, and what, what, what do we need to do to shift it, if anything? Well, Dean, uh, you know, she does raise uh, some points that are, are, are problematic for somebody in her, in her position. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of teachers that are suffering um, because they don't make the kind of money that it might cost to live in a city like San Francisco. Yeah, I, I mean, we can't even get people like waiters and waitresses and busboys. I mean, not to mention firemen, policemen, teachers uh, to live in the Bay Area. And jobs are going hurting because of that. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I mean, 
part of it is because we have Silicon Valley right around the corner yeah. and they're, 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 you know, the, I mean, this is part of the problem of having that, you know, it's nice to have it, but they're driving up the cost of, of things for other people in the city. And, you know, the price of everything goes up uh, because of it. So, I mean, it's just part of the territory. It's not really landlords that are causing that problem. Um, and uh, I represent, landlords and tenants i believe jessica does too and i think david yes. does as well he can correct me if he's wrong but i know jessica does uh there's times where i'm representing more tenants than i am landlords just throughout the year so i'm, I'm very sensitive to to the problem that exists and I, I will say this when the ellis act was first enacted it was expensive for landlords to use it it was expensive right now rents went up so now it looks like the ellis act is a deal it's looking, but in the beginning, it certainly was not. It was a lot of money to pay in relocation, and landlords hated it. They they didn't have the money to pay. They didn't want to have the money to pay. They felt like they were being, you know, extorted. It's just how they felt. It was a lot of money at the time, and um, there's still a lot of let's call them landlord. Uh, I mean, uh, mom and pop landlords. There's a lot of them. They're, they're, oh, yeah. they're sure there's a lot of investors too, but there's a lot of small landlords. A lot that's most of my practice, small landlords, and there's a lot of them. So uh, too. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I don't have an easy solution for this. It's a problem, and it's getting worked out. This is how it gets worked out. You know, there's this is it. This program is part of it. These calls are part of it. This is how it gets worked out. It might take a long time. Well, I want to come back to that, but first we need a little station break to identify ourselves. This is 91.7 KALW, online KALW.org. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Last point, Dean. Um, there are many developments that are developers that are required to set aside 15% of their uh, development for um, um, at least the low to mid-income housing. And usually those are administrated through the city where the um, uh, development is located. Uh, and I'm speaking for the peninsula. So almost like every city, uh, South San Francisco, Daly City, San Mateo, San Carlos, Redwood City, uh, uh, the teachers, firemen or policemen could apply and they would be given priority for these subsidized units. Right. Well, it sounds like we've got some solutions here and there, uh, but I think there may be an even bigger problem um, coming up, and we'll talk about that later. But right now, we've got J.P. from Oakland on the line. J.P., are you there? I am. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. What's uh, up, my friend? I want, well, I wanted to, you know, chime in. I thought it's a great discussion. And, you know, getting back to this idea of some kind of federal regulation in this area. Yeah, what do you um, think about that? A little bit of background. Well, I'm, I have a, a few rentals, so I'm kind of the definition of a small 
uh, mom and pop uh, housing provider. Oh, you're and, the you're the guy that Susan just said uh, doesn't exist. You're the mom and pop landlord. Exactly. All right. Okay. Well, I, good I, to hear from you. Nice to know you really I would exist. Say that the vast majority of what you know most people would consider naturally occurring affordable housing is owned by smaller uh, housing providers or landlords. Um, but I wanted to weigh in on this federal issue because I think it kind of touches on a very uh, you know important point, and that I actually would welcome to have a federal uh, some kind of rent control or tenant regulations. Um, but with the provision that they supersede all of the local laws. Because mm-hmm. what's happened is you have all of this, you know, this potpourri of, uh, you know, some of these laws are contradictory, they don't make sense, they're poorly administered, and it's kind of a circus. You know, anyone who's gone to the Oakland Rent Board or the San Francisco Rent Board just realizes that they're just very poorly run, they make bad decisions, they don't follow their own regulations, and I think that having a standard around the whole country would make a lot of sense because it would hold up um, to kind of the sniff test. It would be a more moderate, rational policy that would actually make sense and benefit people rather than just creating unnecessary regulation that just is uh, divisive at the worst. And I think a great example of that is this eviction moratorium that's still in place in Alameda County. I mean, it's kind of the definition of bad faith. When you single out one industry, um, you know, it made sense in the first few months of COVID when people were sheltering in place. But the fact that you even have an eviction moratorium three years later is testament to the bad faith and bad policy that the locals are allowed to conduct themselves in. So just a perspective from a small local uh, housing provider. Hey, a great comment. I appreciate that. What do you guys think? A national standard instead of a crazy quilt? Is that going to work? Well, Dean, you know, it could just be a difference of, of you know, of opinion on, on how better to run things. But I think the locals are probably in a better position to run their local area. That's just, you know, uh, real estate is different by every locality. The localities next to another locality are completely different. So, you know, I just, I don't see that the federal government could put something into effect that's better than what a state can do. A state's already got a lot of ground to cover. Um, before the program uh, started, or, or maybe it was during the program, we had, you know, compared San Francisco to, uh, I, I think, Vallejo or Vacaville, or I forget where, but uh, Fresno. You know, so, I mean, it's vastly different rental markets in San Francisco and Fresno. So I, I I think that the local governments, you know, you presume that everybody's trying to do their job correctly. Um, I think the local governments are probably in a better position to handle it. But it's just a matter of opinion. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I just don't yeah. think the federal government is in the best position to, to do something. If they did, it would be very broad, very loose. It couldn't be... It wouldn't be much because they just don't have the, you know, they don't, they, they're not on the ground. They just, yeah. anyway, that's my, that's my, you know, take on it. Vastly different perspectives. Why do I think that somehow this is going to wind up in court? Uh, well, <laughs> um, well, you know, we, I, we've got, we, let's get one more caller in. We've got George from San Francisco. George, you there? Hello there. What's up? Well, maybe this is a, 
a splinter off of the kind of rent controls that you were just thinking of, that you were just discussing. But let's just keep it local. Do you actually have a... Are you thinking there's about to be a resurgence of rent controls in this area? And what will another round of rent controls actually sound like or feel like? Do you think that is a, a probable um, resurgence in case a lot of people are out of work? Well, uh, let me. Um, nobody has uh, 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 the ability to foretell the future. But if I if I attempt to now, I'm going to contradict myself by attempting to foretell the future. I think the other shoe that is is likely to drop would be uh, the issue of, of vacancy control. So right now, all the rent control only applies to Existing rents to existing tenants can only go up, let's say, the maximum right is 10% in the state right now. But it doesn't apply to a vacant unit. I mean, the landlord can double the rent, triple the rent, can fix it up, fix it up, remodel it. And, and that happens all the time. Now, the other shoe that could drop would be to say, that, oh, wait a minute here, the landlord can only charge 10% above the prior rent, even if it's vacant. And and I think that would have a very, very uh, bad effect on the values of real estate in the state. And um, uh, my understanding is that there were bills in the state Senate that to do that, but they haven't passed as of yet. I don't know if Sal or Jessica know anything more about that? Yeah, there, there were um, bills that, uh, as you explained, right now we have what's called vacancy decontrol, which means that once the vacant is the unit is vacant, the landlord can set the rent at whatever they want to set it at. There have been bills to introduce vacancy control, which would be take that back basically and say, okay. That's not how it's going to work from now on. There's going to be a rent control board that's either local or state or something, but they're going to set the rents uh, or set a limit to how much the rent can be raised when when a vacant is when a unit becomes vacant. Those are called vacancy control. Now Berkeley had vacancy control when I first came to California to go to law school in the '90s, and the Costa Hawkins Act is what. Um, what the legislature passed to enact vacancy decontrol and, and Berkeley had to get, eventually had to get rid of vacancy control. Their, their rent board set the, the rent rates and, you know, said how much the landlord could raise it and things like that. And it was very strict. Um, and the people who were behind Costra Hawkins for vacancy decontrol were worried about Quite frankly, all the mom and pop landlords, the people who had been, you know, um, retail owners, cleaners, janitors, um, you know, small business people who had bought like two or three or four flats to you know, potentially have a retirement income. But with the, with the Berkeley rent control having vacancy control, uh, they weren't 
they weren't ha didn't have any investment for their future. They didn't have any retirement investment. And so that's why the Costa-Hawkins Act was pushed through um, there and, and vacancy decontrol became the statewide norm. You know, I think George raises a, a larger point, though, which is during the pandemic, we had a lot of emergency legislation. And legislation and regulation tend to be kind of a one-way street. I mean, once the regulation is in place, it tends not to go away. And now we've got what, what could be characterized as emergencies in terms of inflation, recession, homelessness. Is there a possibility that those regulations that we got used to during the pandemic will just stay around to deal with newly declared emergencies? Well, it's certainly a possibility, Dean, but, you know, one of the biggest changes to rent control, one of the biggest was in 2019, the Tenant Protection Act, and that came into place on January 1st, 2019, before the pandemic, mm -hmm. and it's it stretches throughout the whole state, yeah, good and, point. you know, for places that don't have rent control, it's a lot of control. For San yeah. Francisco, it's not, because we've already got something in place that's a little bit more... Um, you know, strict, let's say, for lack of a better term, right, Jessica? It's a little, <laughs> little, you know, it's a little tighter. There's a little bit more protection. Right. There's more. So um, what's in place right now? I mean, I, I think, you know, there are emergency uh, measures. And if they make sense, sure, they might become permanent somehow, you know, one way or the other. Um, but in the beginning, I think even our, our most recent caller said, hey, you know, these things came in and they, they provided some usefulness in the beginning of the pandemic. And now they're still around three years later, but they are starting to wind down. San Francisco has no moratorium on non-payment of rent cases right now. There's no moratorium in San Francisco. There is in Alameda County. Um, I don't know when the date is that that's going to expire. I don't know if there's an expiration date yet, but not uh, for Alameda County. Not for uh, Alameda County. They were going to discuss it at the next city or uh, county council. Right. Oh, so there, there you go. There is a big exception in the 2019 Act, and that is, I, I think I may have mentioned it before, uh, that if you're going to do what they call substantial remodeling, which is defined as a remodeling that will require more than 30 days to complete, uh, uh, and uh, you, you, that's an exception that you could give a 60-day notice and um, absent a, a relocation local statute, uh, you have to forgive the last month's rent or one, <coughs> or one month's rent. <coughs> Usually it's the last month. Um, and uh, that's a big uh, loophole. And I've heard that there have been, been some talks about eliminating that or amending the 2019 act to eliminate that loophole. <clears throat> and that would be a major hurt for many of my mom and pop landlord uh, uh, clients. Yeah. You know, Jessica, I think we were talking off air about Los Angeles County declaring homelessness an emergency, which it kind of it's, is. The city, and, the yeah. city of Los Angeles. Yes. The mayor um, in, did did a um, state of emergency for homelessness in, in the city of Los Angeles. And that, that could certainly have ripple effects for landlord tenant issues and eviction issues and so on, right? 
Oh, certainly. I think that's her whole point. Yeah. Uh, elaborate on that. Why is that the whole point? Well, I believe, uh, you know, and I, I'm just going with what I read in, in summaries in various places, but uh, what I understood, the mayor of Los Angeles, that was part of her platform was addressing homelessness and by uh, declaring a local state of emergency on homelessness, th that frees up additional funds um, locally and also at the state and federal levels. It also takes down certain barriers and makes the money more available more quickly, comparatively than it would, you know, it might be 60 days instead of 90 days. You never know. But um, but it, it makes that more available to address the, the issue of homelessness. Yeah, you know, um, so, you know, people that are homeless might not necessarily want to be tenants either. They just are homeless because they don't fit into the system. There, there is those type of homeless folks where they just they can't have a job. They just can't do it, you know. And they're they're homeless for for in part for mainly for those reasons. They just don't have an income, and they're not able to maintain an income. So they're going to need help. But that's completely different than helping tenants who who are having difficulty paying high rents. It's a, it's a, just a completely different, um, you know, set of problems. Sure. You know, um, no argument. Know. Yeah, right. And I don't know if the Los Angeles, um, you know, uh, homelessness issue is is also, you know, spilling over high rents for, for tenants. I, I, I don't know, but it really shouldn't. I, I don't think it should because it's two completely different problems. Um, well, I mean, there are some folks who are homeless because they can't, couldn't pay rents or they could, you know, that for whatever reason, they couldn't stay where they were. I, I think they're intertwined problems, but it all comes back to the fact that California is, is not building the housing that they are required to build. You know, there are state statutes that require localities to build certain amounts of, of units and, and localities aren't, you know, they just, they aren't. And right. the state and has decided that they are going to now, you know, go after folks who aren't they're, they're pressuring cities and counties to file the reports and to build the housing. Right. Uh, I'm, I like to look at, at the uh, other end of the glass. I mean, I don't understand the reason why if you're building uh, apartments along the Caltrain, why it can't be more than three stories high. Uh, why can't it be six stories high? Uh, and, and if that were allowed, it'd be a lot less people without apartments and there'd be a lot more affordable apartments. But, but if you try that, then nobody wants it in their backyard. They say, oh, we don't want to have a New York city in, uh, South San Francisco. We, it's too big. Um, but anyway, I think there should be more, uh, uh, bans on height restrictions that are placed locally. I mean, I, I think I agree. I mean, if there was more housing, there would be less tension because, you know, if there's more housing, then it would just be more affordable because there's more of it and tenants would right. have choices. 
they would you actually might, have via supply for the demand. Right. So there would just be less tension. You know, some of the laws that we have in place might not even be necessary then, you know, and just be on the books because they're there, but they wouldn't really be necessary. It might be less work for us attorneys, but it would probably help to solve the, the problem. You know, the the reason for the high rents and high prices are pre- precisely because there's not enough, you know. So anyway, I I agree with, with that, um, you know, with yeah, what David said. I don't think anyone here on this program disagrees that housing is a, is a, a fundamental that everyone should have, should have the opportunity to have. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think yeah. we can all agree with that. But, I, you know, I want to go back to something that uh, Salvatore raised earlier in the program. Um, we were talking about landlords and high rents and Sal, I, I, and I hope I get I characterize your statements correctly. You said landlords aren't the problem. Part of the problem or a big part of the problem is that we live here in Silicon Valley. Um, and mm. we know that there are a lot of people who make a lot of money who drive, who have driven the rents up and to a certain extent driven people who were maybe able to find housing out of the housing market into the streets or maybe out of the Bay Area. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much how I said it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm glad I characterized it correctly. But now I'm wondering. Are we looking at yet another problem coming up in this chaotic rental market? Because what we're hearing every day now is that Silicon Valley is starting to cut back. You know, Microsoft is going to lay off 15,000 people. Um, Amazon is going to lay off X thousand people. Google is laying off, I think, 17,000 or something like that. And all of a sudden, all of those people who drove the rent to, to through the roof, uh, no pun intended, um, are going to find themselves um, without an income and maybe not able to to pay those extravagant rents. How does this play out? Are we going to see homelessness at the top end of the economic spectrum as well as the bottom end? Well, that's exactly why, why we have a so-called free market, because when if that happens, and it may likely happen, you're going to see those $4,000 rents drop to $2,500. And And I think it's happening now, David. Uh, I think it's happening now, you know, not that drastic, but I think what was, you know, 5,000 is now 4,500. You know, tenants have some some say in what they're going to pay in rent right now is my experience. I've got over 10 landlords that have told me that, you know, with the the apartments that they've been trying to rent. And uh, they're just not able to call this, you know, call those higher numbers anymore because the market's not there for it. So it's sort of fixing itself, in my experience, going going down right now. And these layoffs might make it go down even further. I sympathize with the lady caller who was a teacher in San Francisco. Because yeah. those people are are caught in uh, as, as a byproduct of the uh, Silicon Valley. So, I mean, I don't know exactly what she makes, but I'm assuming a teacher makes somewhere in the 70s or something like that. I could be off. Or whatever, but the starting, my understanding is starting uh, salary in Silicon Valley is more like 120 or higher, and and so that's what's happening. She, that poor uh, school teacher, uh, can't compete 
with uh, somebody who's offering who could pay much more. And if two of them at 120 are renting the apartment, that's 240,000 of income. They can easily pay mm-hmm. four or five thousand dollars a month. Yeah, and, and you know when that's happening, David. There's other Silicon Valley or high income earning, you know, tenants that are looking at the apartments. So there's a little bidding going on there too. Maybe not now, but there was. That's how we got here. Is that they were bidding up not only the prices of real estate but the prices of rents. You know, they're working against each other as well. And then other, you know, long term San Francisco residents, let's say you know, that have lived here a long time or maybe even their whole life can't compete with that. You know, they're just not in that category of competition. So, of course, they're going to get priced out. And, uh, I, you know, I don't have an easy solution for that. You know, the landlord's just following the market. I, you know, I don't know at what point we, you know, what do we do? Dismantle the whole free market, you know, uh, system for rental control, rent control, you know, for rentals. I, I, I don't have an easy answer. It it kind of sounds like that's what we've been doing with statewide and now a talk of national rent control. But it also sounds like you guys are, are giving us a little glimmer of hope that the free market mechanism will bring things more or less back to equilibrium, that rents will, uh, will drop down to something like reasonable levels and people like our, our – our teacher who has to move out will be able to come back. Is that the way you see it playing out? I, I do with the, with the uh, proviso, like David and Jessica said, got to build more housing. At oh, least yeah. for, for California and the Bay Area, you've got to build more housing. Otherwise, there's always going to be a shortage. You know, but I, I, I think so. I think prices will come down with that, with that proviso that we've got to build more housing. We should be paying teachers more more money. Oh, here, here. Absolutely. They deserve a lot more money than they're getting. Yeah, I don't know how Absolutely. much they I don't know how much they make, but it's not enough. Absolutely. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I don't even have children. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I I well the other thing I want to comment is, you know, all all four of us on this program right now, we're we've been in this business or around long enough that if you remember the dot-com bust of the early 2000s, um, you know, they drove rents up. Rents went down again when that when that fell apart. You know, it's a cyclical thing. It comes and goes. Uh, unfortunately, the people who are affected right now probably don't remember the last time it happened. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it, it is cyclical. I don't know. I think... You know, ideally, I, I kind of have, I don't know, I call them a little bit socialist if you want to, but I have i have hopes and beliefs that, a, a, that if everybody had an opportunity for housing and things like that, I, I think that these are rights that should be um, basic in this country a, across the board, that everybody should have housing, that everybody should have food, that everybody should have medical care, you know. And, and uh, you know, I think, I, I don't know, I, I feel like right now, I feel like the free market isn't going to get there. But I, I hope that, you know, the action of the free market at least gets us closer. And let's just remember that those who forget history are always doomed to repeat it. Yeah. I would say just one last thing for me. Yes. Uh, and that is if the federal government and Biden wanted to do something, 
he should make some low interest construction loans for building more housing. Yeah, here, here. Sal, any last thoughts? Uh, here's my, my thought, my, my last thoughts for tonight's program is that we're in the process of, of, you know, dealing with coming off the pandemic, um, inflation and probably recession with these layoffs you mentioned and other, other, other forces. Um, so right now, I mean, there's just tensions are going to be high. People are going to be upset. We're going to have to work through this. Lawyers do their part in representing parties and trying to get things, you know, resolved that way. But it's going to take more than that. It's going to be a trying time, I think, for the next couple of years. Yeah, probably true. David and Jessica, about 30 seconds apiece. Last thoughts for your landlords and your tenants. Oh, for the landlords. I see I most of if not all of my uh, clients are are what I call either mom and pop or they're small groups of uh, not more than six or eight uh, in, uh, in, uh, moms and pops together. And uh, and they want peace, just like Sal said. They don't want to have vacancies. They don't want to have court battles. They want peace. But they have to keep up with their costs and with the uh, – uh, fixing up their units and maintaining mm-hmm. them. And um, so they've got to have some reasonable increases. I don't think any of my clients have ever tried to raise the rent even as much as 10%. It's, you know, the maximum is usually 7 or 8%. Uh, so I don't really have clients who are price gouging, and and I'm against price gouging myself and I don't have a problem with limiting increases to not more than 10% on existing tenants vacancy decontrol if the if the mom and pops are going to remodel and do they should be allowed to charge whatever the market will pay and if it's too high they'll be empty and they'll lower the price well, this has been a great show and most informative. It's a regular feature here on Your Legal Rights, and we will be back soon with another edition of Landlord Tenant. For tonight, you've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco Bay Area, where we focused on landlord tenant law. Our guests tonight have been Jessica Chilek, Salvatore Tempano, and David Finkelstein. Thanks to all of you, and thanks to all of our callers for calling in. The show tonight was produced by Dean Johnson, yours truly, with the assistance of Jeff Hayden, and Joanne Marr has been at the controls. For me, Jeff Hayden, Joanna, and all our guests, thanks, good night, and stay safe. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.